I want to invite you to turn your Bibles to uh, Romans chapter 5. We started a series uh, a couple of weeks ago that we've called Reigning in Life, and we are using Romans chapter 5, verse 17, as uh, a text scripture, beginning place for this very thought. Paul is uh, speaking of God's doctrine of two men. There was one man, Adam, and his actions brought death upon the world. His rebellion against God brought death upon the world. But then Jesus, who was God's second man, his actions brought life to the world. And that's what Romans chapter 5 verse 17 is speaking of when Paul says by the Holy Ghost, for if by one man's, speaking of Adam, one man's offense, death reigned by the one. Much more, much more, much more, they which receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. Now, folks, notice what it says about the believer. He's writing to Christians and he's writing about something that belongs to Christians. He says that Christians are intended to reign in life. Now, the word reign means to rule or have dominion over something. He's not saying, certainly, no one could argue that he's saying that Christians are intended to be defeated. But instead, he's saying that Christians are intended to win, to be victorious. He's not saying that Christians are intended to be dominated by anything in this life. Now, here's the, here's the problem with this verse, for a lot of people at least, is that uh, they read this and they say, yes, 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 we're going to reign with Jesus in the sweet by and by. Well, okay, yeah, we will, but that's not what he's saying. Notice where he says you're going to reign. He says you're going to reign in this life. He said that you're going to reign in this life. And he said it's conditional, but available to every believer. He didn't say this is going to happen for special ones. He just said those that meet the simple conditions of receiving. The word receive means to take hold of. To take hold of. The abundance of grace, number one. And secondly, the gift of righteousness. Now, I would submit to you folks that these folks have already been saved. Paul writes to the Romans. He's writing to the Christians. He's not writing to the unsaved. So he's writing to believers. And he's saying, here's what God intends. Now, whether or not it happens is up to you. Because it doesn't depend on God. If it just depended on God giving the gift of righteousness and God showing the abundance of grace, then every Christian would reign in every situation. Right? I mean, that would be automatic. Now, I think that's the way a lot of people want it to be. Well, I'm sorry, that's not going to happen. That's not the way it is. But here is the way that it is. Everyone, every believer, every person that has been saved that takes hold of that salvation. And that's what the abundance of grace really means. It means the finished work of Jesus. It means everything that God did for us, he did through his grace. So we could just summarize grace as being the finished work of Jesus. Now, the reason I do that is because a lot of people are looking at grace as some kind of feeling. For example, Paul writes in his own situation about the thorn in the flesh. A lot of people think that was sickness, but Paul said very specifically that it was persecution. And he said, I prayed God that I prayed three times that God would take him, it, this persecuting angel or demon away from me. And God said, my grace is sufficient for thee. Well, what does that mean? The church has fought wars over what that means. 
What does it mean? My grace is sufficient for you. So many times Christians take that verse of Scripture and that thought that what they think is the principle is, uh, expressed by that Scripture, and they say, well, okay, whatever happens, God's grace is sufficient, so we just sit back and take it all. And so they think grace must be this comforting feeling or satisfaction that even though the world is going to beat you down, someday Jesus is coming back for you. That's not what grace is. Grace is something that God gives you to produce victory. God's grace gave you victory over sin and death. God's grace always lifts you up. It doesn't cause you to put up with something that's less than what Jesus died for. Grace is never some kind of feeling or some kind of condition where we just sit back and take it. Never. That's why I define grace as the finished work of Jesus. Because the finished work of Jesus, this scripture tells us, along with many others, guarantees your victory if you'll take hold of it. If you'll take hold of it. If you will receive to take hold on, to act on this Abundance of grace, this finished work of Jesus, and the gift of righteousness. Now, folks, nowhere in the Bible does it say anything about growing in righteousness. You can't grow in righteousness. It talks about growing in faith. It talks about growing in grace. Now, how can you grow in the finished work of Jesus? In your knowledge of it. But it never says a word about growing in righteousness. You will never be more righteous than you were the moment you were born again. Now, some people hear that and say, yeah. I know that's true, but since I've been born again, I've really messed up. Well, you haven't lost your righteousness. You may have committed unrighteous acts, but those unrighteous acts cannot undo the relationship of righteousness that you obtained when you made Jesus the Lord of your life. I may really mess up and offend my wife, but it doesn't mean I'm not married. I've got a relationship. It was established before God and before the courts. I've got a relationship with my wife. The only way I can break that relationship is with great difficulty. And it's not by just me doing something and she says, okay, that's it, we're not married anymore. She could walk out the door and say, we're not married anymore, I never want to see you again, and we're still married. The relationship is still there. Your relationship with God is even stronger than a marriage relationship. So your unrighteousness meaning your unrighteous actions, don't do away with your relationship with God, which is established in righteousness. But not every believer takes hold of that. Not every believer accepts that. Not every believer walks in that. A lot of Christians walk around through life feeling unworthy. They're, they're, they're the dominating factor or characteristic of their Christian life is that they feel unworthy. Well, how can a, how can a righteous person feel unworthy? Only by choice. I like that. I've never said that before. How can a righteous person feel unworthy? Only by choice. Because God never looks at you as unworthy. God never looks at you as unrighteous. Yeah, but you mean God sees me as righteous after I've messed up? Yeah. He sees you as a righteous person that felt that stumbled, that made a mistake. So what do we do? First John 1 John 1.9 says, if you confess your sins, that means where you stumbled, then God is faithful to, and just to cleanse you 
to forgive your sin, first of all, and to cleanse you from all your unrighteousness. In other words, the unrighteous action, the act of stumbling. But your relationship, the union with God, which is righteousness, is never severed. It can only be severed and that with great difficulty. And Hebrews chapter 6 talks about that. Don't even want to get there. Most Christians never get mature enough to even fall away. Most Christians never get mature enough, never grow to the place of maturity where they could lose their salvation. So to talk about that and, and to use that as, as the extreme, as some example and, and something to watch out for, folks, that's ridiculous. They that receive the abundance of grace, the abundance of the finished work of Jesus, the abundant inheritance, maybe we should say, the abundant inheritance of the finished work of Jesus and the gift of righteousness shall reign. He didn't say might. Folks, I want you to understand something. When you and I come to the place where we understand what Jesus purchased for us and that we are righteous because God made us so, your righteousness is the same as Jesus' righteousness. It's not a offshoot. It's not a copy. It's not a second generation. It's the same righteousness. Because when Jesus died, he went to hell. He was separated from God. If Jesus did not die spiritually, then that means somebody still has to. But if he died as your substitute so that you not have to, then that means he died completely. That means life departed from Jesus. Now, how does that work? How can God die? I don't know. But I know it has to be in order for you and I to be made righteous. So therefore, the Bible says Jesus was justified in spirit. There came a point in time when God saw that Jesus had paid the price. And I don't believe he left him there one second longer than was necessary. Once the price was paid, the life of God came back in him. Jesus was the firstborn from the dead. The firstborn from the spiritually dead. I don't know where you and I are on that number list, but we followed him in. But he was the firstborn from the dead. What does that mean? That means the righteousness that was given to him or the righteousness that he was then remade into was not his original righteousness. It was something that God gave him. Isaiah 54 says something interesting. God says, no weapon formed against you. I think this is verse 17. No weapon formed against you shall prosper, and every tongue that rises up against you, you shall condemn. Every tongue that rises up against you in judgment, you shall condemn. And then the last part of the verse says, and their righteousness is of me, saith God. That has always jumped out in that scripture to me. And their righteousness is of me, saith God. It's almost like he's in the devil's face. It's almost like the devil saying, that's not right. You can't make these evil people righteous. I caused them to stumble. All of mankind was in my clutches. All of mankind was under my dominion and under my control. It's not right. You can't make them righteous. And God says, their righteousness is of me. That's always had a jarring effect upon me. Whenever I'd read that verse of Scripture, their righteousness is of me, saith God. Well, did you know that Jesus' righteousness is of God? It had to be. Because he lost his own when he laid aside his his life, when he allowed himself to die on the cross. When he became death, literally sin, but we know sin is the byproduct of death. 
or the result of death. When Jesus died, literally died, that means he died in spirit. That means he was separated from God. That means there was no trace of life left in him. Well, what life does he have now then? When he was raised from the dead, life infused him. The life of God came back upon him. Well, what life is that? It wasn't his original life. It was life that God gave unto him just like he gives unto you when you're born again. It's the same righteousness. It's the same life. Do you realize when we take a position of being unworthy or unable or whatever word we want to put on it, do you realize we're arguing against God's righteousness? God's saying, their righteousness is of me. And we're saying, well, no, not really. We just feel so unworthy. I'm glad God doesn't lose his temper like I might. Can you imagine the earthquakes and the natural things that would take place from God shouting in heaven, wake up? And actually the Bible says, awake unto righteousness. Paul wrote to the church and says, awake unto righteousness. What does he mean? He said, wake up and realize who you are. Much more, they which receive the abundance of grace, the abundance of all that Jesus provided through his death, burial, and resurrection. Much more, they which receive, take hold of the abundance of grace, the finished work of Jesus, and the gift of righteousness shall reign. Shall reign in life, here, now. We're not talking about heaven. We're not talking about sweet by and by. We're talking about now. Shall reign in life by one, Christ Jesus. Now, I want you to notice something else about this verse. Notice what it does not say. It does not say you'll reign through him. See, a lot of people are trying to reign through Jesus. And what that is, it's a cop-out. It's us trying to put it off over on Jesus. Well, we just reign through Christ. No, you reign because you're in him. The responsibility is yours. It's like somebody saying, well, I can't do anything with my kids, so I've just turned them over to the Lord. Well, unless they're adults and on their own, you can't turn them over to the Lord. They're your responsibility. In the same way, it's your responsibility to reign in life. It's your responsibility to take hold of the abundance of grace, the fullness of what Jesus died for, and the gift of righteousness. It's your responsibility, not God's, not even the Lord Jesus. Nope. you reign in this life because of who God made you to be. Now, it is without dispute that God intended man to have dominion on the earth. It's without dispute that God intended two things, really. Two things are identified specifically as God's plan before he ever made man. One was that he would be holy and without blame, in other words, righteous. And two, that he had dominion. No question about that. No dispute. The scripture is absolutely clear on that. We've covered some of that. Ephesians chapter 1 talks about how that God chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated unto us the adoption of children. Or predestinated us unto the adoption of children. Now, adoption is a different thing. I I really regret that they use the word adoption in, um, in the King James Bible 
Because adoption in the Bible does not mean what we think of. In the, in the ancient Eastern world, which the Bible was written for, you never took someone out of your family and put them into your family. That's not what adoption was. That, that just never happened. If someone, a rich man or whoever it might be, didn't have children, and he had a servant in his house that he treated as a son, that's all it was. He was treated as a son. But nobody ever adopted in that sense, in the Western mentality, somebody outside of their family into their family. That just didn't happen. Adoption took place within a family. People adopted their own children. Now, see, that doesn't compute to us because we think adoption is taking somebody outside the family and making them part of your family. That's not what adoption means in the Bible. Adoption means you accept them as mature, as an equal partner. So as children in the East, as children would grow up, uh, an example of this in the Jewish tradition is the bar mitzvah. It's where somebody enters into manhood. Well, they're not men when they enter into manhood. They're like 13 years old when that takes place. They're not men, but what they are is they're treated as a partner. They're treated as an equal. They're treated as an adult. And God adopts us, uh, allows or has planned for us to be adopted as sons way before we ever mature spiritually. Adoption was where you accepted that your son, who has been tutored and has been, has been trained, has been educated, whatever the case may be, at a certain age or at a certain point, you say, okay, I now accept him as a man into my family. Well, he was your son all the time. He's still your son. You've just now adopted him as an adult. So when the Bible talks about he's predestined, God predestined us, turn to Ephesians 1. We've looked at this before, but I think it'd be well for us to look at it while I'm talking about it. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. According, how do those blessings come? Here's how, here's why. According as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. That means before man was ever created, this was God's plan. According as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. What did God plan before he ever made man? For man to be righteous. That's what holy and without blame before him in love means, isn't it? Is there any other possibility for another meaning? It's got to be righteous. Holy is righteous. Without blame is righteous. So God, before he ever made man, he said, here's how man's going to be. Now, let me stop here and make a comment. He's not talking about Adam. God knew before he ever made man that Adam was going to fall. When Eve ate of the, the, the fruit of the tree and gave the, the, the fruit to Adam and he ate, God did not say, oh, no, what are we going to do now? This changes everything. God knew from the beginning what was going to happen. He didn't will it to happen, but he knew that it was going to happen. And so when it says that God predestined, literally, predestined you before man was ever made, God predestined man to be righteous, he's talking about righteous in Christ, not righteous as Adam. In other words, you are exactly where God planned for you to be. 
All the time that people look around and say, well, I wish it was different. I wish we could be in the Garden of Eden and never had dealt with sin. God planned for you to be how you are now in Christ Jesus. Yeah, but I've just made so many mistakes, Pastor Mike. God knew that and he planned for you to be right where you are, righteous in Christ. So he predestined us. He chose us before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us. This word predestined means to be preplanned. This was God's plan before it ever was consummated, before the world was ever created, before the universe was ever made. This was God's plan. You were God's plan. Having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ. He predestined before man was ever made, before man was ever formed of the dust of the earth. He predestined men to be made into adult sons. That's what adoption means. It means to be made an adult son. Into adult sonship by Jesus Christ. He's not talking about Adam. We have this idyllic picture in our minds, I think, sometimes, where we think, oh, the Garden of Eden. What a wonderful thing it would have been to live in the Garden of Eden. Just walk around, eat grapes. (laughs) The flowers, the trees. That's not what God predestined you for. God didn't predestine you to walk around naked in the garden. You can tell that by the way some of us look, can't you? That couldn't have been God's plan. What did he predestine you for? He predestined you to be an adult son in Jesus Christ. He predestined you to take hold of the abundance of grace, the finished work of Jesus, and the gift of righteousness just as you are. Quit thinking you're broken. Quit thinking something's messed up, that you've aborted the plan, that you've uh, caused some kind of detour that you can never recover from. That's not true, folks. You're where God wants you to be, an adult son in Christ Jesus. And he calls you an adult son. He treats you as an adult child even before you mature spiritually. That's good news. He doesn't wait until you attain. And he says, okay, now I'll let you have the, re- the blessings and the results and all the other benefits that come as an adult son or daughter. No. He puts those in your possession when you're born again. He treats you as if you are an adult child you, with all the blessings, all the benefits, all the privileges of an adult son, somebody that has already spiritually matured. Now it's up to you to mature. It's up to you to utilize those things. But you're exactly where he intended for you to be. You're not broken. God doesn't make broken stuff. Having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself. What's his intent? That you be an adult son so that you're joined with him. Union with God is everything, folks. God's original plan could be summed up in one thing, united with him. 
Why did he do this? Because he wanted to, according to the pleasure of his goodwill. According to the pleasure of his goodwill. That simply means because he wanted it this way. Because he wanted it this way. Now, as I said before, I began to say, it is without dispute that God intended two things for man. Number one, that he be righteous. And number two, that he have dominion. Now, we see that he made Adam in the Garden of Eden with dominion. Genesis 1, verse 26. Let us make man in our own image. And God said, let us make man in our own image. And let them have dominion over the works of our hands. What does that mean? It means God intended man to rule. We think of man reigning as way back when Adam was in the Garden of Eden. Yeah, Adam was even the God of this world. And he was. He lost that title to Satan when he disobeyed God and obeyed what Satan said to do instead. But Adam was intended to be the God of this world. He created man to rule. There is not one sense, one speck of defeat that God ever placed inside of man. I don't know about you, but I hate to lose. Well, I do know about you. You hate to lose too. The problem is some people get used to it. Some people accept it, but everybody hates to lose. Why? Because God didn't make you to lose. He made you to be victorious. Now think about what God's plan was. God made Adam the God of this world. He said, everything on the earth, everything I've created is under your control. That's what that means, isn't it? Let them have dominion over the works of my hands. That means everything I made is under your control. Adam was intended and placed in a position to rule under God over all the earth. That makes him the God of this world. Doesn't make him a God, it makes him a ruler. That's what that means. Satan is the God of this world, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 4, 4. It doesn't mean that Satan is a God. It means he's the ruler of the earth. Why? Because spiritual death rules and reigns over the earth, over them that don't know about Jesus and haven't received it. Right? So Satan was intended to be the God of this world. How's that going to work? Let's say, say, let's say Adam doesn't fall. How's that going to work? Is Adam going to have kids and then his kids are going to fight over who's going to be the ruler of the world? Is that God's intent? They're going to fight it out until one dominates the others? No, righteous men don't do that. Righteous men don't dominate other people. So what? in what sense did God intend for them to be rulers or to dominate the works of his hands, to dominate in their own lives? I'm sure if it had, had gone on for, for thousands of years, perhaps, or whatever the case was, Adam would have had children. They would have started dividing territory. Okay, this is my part. This is your part. This is their part. And the more kids, the more they would have divided till they finally get down to the place where they rule in their own lives. That's the only way you could do it righteously and not dominate somebody else. See, righteousness prevents you from dominating other people. God never said you can dominate or you can rule or have dominion over everybody else. He said you can rule over the works of my hands. In other words, God intended man to be a ruler in his own life. Well, that's what Jesus restored. Jesus restored the rule and reign in our own life. That's what Romans 5.17 is all about. Much more they which receive the abundance of grace, the finished work of Jesus, 
and the gift of righteousness shall reign in life. One translation says as kings in life. Shall reign as kings in life. Shall reign as kings in life. Where are you going to reign? You're supposed to reign in your own life. You're supposed to reign in your own life. Folks, every creative ability there is in mankind came from God. What's the first thing man did? He dominated the animals. Why? He made a horse so he could dominate travel, foot travel. But then things progressed after that. There is no animal on the face of the earth that man has not tamed in some form or fashion. Or captured. Maybe not tamed, but captured at least. Man has dominated everything that's here on the earth. Every other living creature that's here on the earth. Well, what happens next? Well, look at all the things, the, the, the inventions and things that have been created to bless mankind. Henry Ford created the gasoline engine. Why? Because he wanted to dominate horse travel. So he created a car engine. And look at how that's grown. Air travel. Man dominating the skies. Man has always had a desire to dominate. And where those, where that, that, uh, exercise of dominion has not been to, to, to dominate other people, it has always blessed mankind. Where things go wrong is where people try to dominate other people. Man never, was never made to be a slave. No man was ever made to be a slave. So slavery in any form, in every form, is a perversion of man's dominion. It's not the way God intended. Never was, never will be. Even the microwave pizza was created, or the microwave, I'm sorry, the microwave oven was created to dominate the taste of cold pizza. <laughs> There's no question about it. I ruined the joke, didn't I? Uh, I'm sorry. Got in a hurry. Would have been good though, wouldn't it? Every creation, everything that man has ever created to exercise dominion over the elements has brought blessing to mankind. That's the way God created us. Businesses start because man has a creative desire. Now, not all businesses survive. Not all businesses succeed. But look at the people that have failed at one business and started another one. And look at the, the, the stories of some of the richest people in the world who failed time and time and time again. But that desire on the inside of them to dominate their environment, to dominate in their own lives, caused them to finally be successful. That's a creative power from God. That's a divine characteristic of mankind. Now, when God said, let us make man in our own image, we see that that means a lot more than, than what we might assume on the surface. Psalm 8, for example, we looked at that, I believe, a couple of weeks ago, where it says, What is man that thou art mindful of him? Thou made, hast made him a little lower than the angels, King James says. King James translation says, Thou hast made him a little lower than the angels. The word used for angels there in the Hebrew is literally the word Elohim. It's the word that's used as for the name of God in the first five books of the Bible. Where in Genesis 1 1 it says, and God said, let there, uh, uh, and God said, let there be light. Or in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, Genesis 1 1. In the beginning Elohim created the heavens and the earth. 
And God said, and Elohim said, let there be light. Over and over and over again. It's the word Elohim. It's the name for God. So the angels are really saying, who is man that you are mindful of him? You have made him a little lower than yourself. Now, folks, here's something I want you to please listen to. If you don't get it today, maybe it'll dawn on you next week. Because these things take time to sink in. We are so conditioned against these things that it takes time to sink in. But please understand this. God made you as close to himself as he could. He made you, mankind, he made you as close to himself as was possible. You're made in a different class of being than the angels. You're made in a higher class of being than the angels. Hebrews says that it was the angel in in Psalm 8 that says, What is man that thou art mindful of him? The angels are looking at this and saying, You're going to do what? Let us make man in our own image. You're going to make man like you? Why? What is man that you would give him such a position? And crown him with glory and honor and give him dominion. Why? That was the angel's question. Well, they didn't understand God's plan. May have been a little jealousy in there too. I don't know. God made you as close to himself as possible. And that's what man lost when Adam fell. Life was exchanged for death. But what did Jesus say? Jesus said, I am come that you might have life. And that you might have it more abundantly. Folks, I don't believe we've, we've even begun to scratch the surface on what that abundant life is. I don't believe we've even come close. Turn with me over to, um, let's look first at, uh, second Peter chapter one, and then we'll go to Colossians chapter one. I want you to see a couple of things that the Holy Ghost gives us about this. Second Peter chapter one. Let's start reading in verse two. Peter starts off in verse one, just saying, I'm writing this to people of like precious faith. In other words, others that are saved. And he says in verse 2, 2 Peter 1, verse 2, Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Now, if grace means the finished work of Jesus, that means the more you find out about Jesus, the more you'll partake of what he has done for you, which is exactly what it means. Grace and peace are multiplied. The peace of God is multiplied as you find out the promises of God. You may be in turmoil about something. You may be in a condition of unrest, but then you find out what the promise of God is. And as you accept that promise, it brings rest or peace into your life. So peace grows or is increased by the knowledge of God. So is grace. So is the finished work of Jesus. Jesus doesn't do anything more than he's already done on the cross. It's just that we find out about it and partake of it. It's a part of our taking hold. Of the abundance of grace. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. According. Meaning, here's why. According as his divine power hath, past tense, hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. 
through the knowledge of him that has called us to glory and virtue. Now, basically, what he's saying is God gave you everything when you got saved and you found out about it through the word. Whether it was the word preached by somebody or whether it was the word read. God has already given you all things that pertain to life and godliness. Here's the adoption of sons that he predestined. God treats you as an adult son. Everything's available to you before you ever grow into it. Everything is there. That's what he's saying. According as his divine power has given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that has called us to glory and virtue. That means every victory that you'll ever need comes through the knowledge of what Jesus has done. So instead of praying for God to do something, oh, God, turn this situation around. Oh, God, make this stop. Your answer is in finding out what Jesus already did. Which is easy for us, if we understand that, it's easy for us to see why so much of the church world goes around not understanding why God isn't doing something in their life. Because they're spending their time saying, God, do something. He's saying, it's in the book. I've already done it. Whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises. He's talking about the word. The power of God gave us the word of God. That by these, these promises, you might be partakers of the divine nature. Wait a minute, I thought these guys were already saved. They are. But they're not yet partakers of the divine nature. They're saved, they're made righteous, but they're not living up to everything that Jesus had purchased for them in their lives. Well, how do we live up to what Jesus purchased for us in our lives? Through the word, the promises that are given, and our knowledge, our growth in those promises, that you might be partakers. See, God not only wants you saved, he wants you to be a partaker of everything that Jesus did. Now, here's where the modern-day church world has separated the things of God out and, and, and watered down Jesus' work. Because the modern-day church world says that forgiveness of sins is what Jesus accomplished. Well, he did accomplish that, but that's not it. The abundance of grace is not limited by the forgiveness or limited to the forgiveness of sins. I think that's why the Bible calls it the abundance of grace. It's the forgiveness of sins and a whole lot more than that. Because the forgiveness of sins does not cause you to reign in life. It causes you to be forgiven of your sins. So there's got to be more than that. But here's where the church world stops. The church world says, no, our sins are forgiven. Thank God Jesus forgave us of our sins. And that's where they stop. And then they go through life whining and complaining and saying, I don't know why God's causing these things to happen in my life or allowing these things in my life. When God says, you can be a partaker of the divine nature. Now, what does he mean divine nature? He's not just talking about something inside. He's talking about something on the inside producing something on the outside. Jesus, I think we could say, was a partaker of the divine nature. Where did he lose? What was he subject to in defeat? Nothing. When they didn't have enough to eat, he multiplied loaves and fishes. 
We didn't have a way to get to the other side of the, of the sea. He walked on the water. When the storm arose to stop and hinder his progress, when he was in the boat, he stopped the storm. He was a partaker of the divine nature. So much so that everybody says, who is this guy? Well, that's a great question. Who was he? He was a righteous man who was anointed of God. And that's who he was here on the earth. He was a righteous man anointed of God. Let me prove that to you. This, uh, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me finish here and then we'll do that. Notice it says, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature. It's up to you. If you're going to partake of the divine nature, it's up to you. Now, he's talking to people that are born again. He's talking to people that are going to heaven when they when they die. Whether or not you partake of the divine nature here or reign in life here, I believe those are synonymous terms. That's up to you. Notice the next thing he says is having escaped. That's past tense. You've already escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. When you got saved, you escaped the corruption that is in the world. What corruption does he mean? He's talking about spiritual death that came as a result of Adam's sin. You've already escaped that. You're born again. You're of like precious faith as us. You're in the family of God just like we are. Peter's saying, you're saved just like I'm saved. And God gave you exceeding great and precious promises so that you might be a partaker of the divine nature. In other words, so that you might reign in life. Look with me to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, I'll start reading verse 9. Here's a prayer that Paul prays for the, uh, the church at Colossae. He said, for this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you. In other words, he prays this over and over and over again. We do not cease to pray for you and to desire that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Folks, that's a great prayer to pray for yourself. That you be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. To this end, that you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing. God apparently cares how you walk. God apparently cares what is produced in your life. Now, a lot of Christians don't seem to, but God seems to. Paul seems to be concerned about this, and his concern is prompted by the Holy Ghost. That you may walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing. He doesn't say that you might get saved. He doesn't say that you might be worthy of salvation. No, he says you're already saved, so walk like you are. Live like you are saved. That you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Notice increasing in the knowledge of God is a part of walking worthy of the Lord. Strengthened with all might according to his glorious power, unto all patience and long-suffering with joyfulness. Reigning in life doesn't mean everything's going to work out for you overnight. There are things you're going to have to be patient in. There are things you're going to have to be long-suffering in. Reigning in life does not mean the world falls down in front of you. But it means you win. It's kind of like a prize fighter planning for a fight, going in and training for a fight. He knows it's not going to be over in the first round. Chances are, 
It's not going to be over in the first round. He may have to go 15 rounds in this thing. And he may come out looking bloodied and beat up and, and swollen and all this other kind of stuff. But his goal is to win, right? We worry about, oh, what if I get hit? <laughs> well, you're in a fight. You're going to get hit. That's what the Christian walk is. You're in a fight. It's a faith fight, though. Fight the good fight of faith. So it's not all going to work out for you. It's not, as Brother Hagin said, it's not going to fall on you like ripe cherries off the tree. Whatever that is. I've never seen a cherry tree, so I don't know. Verse 12, giving thanks unto the Father, which has made us meet. The word meet is the word able, which has made us able to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. How did he make us able to be a partaker of the inheritance? He made us able to be a partaker of the inheritance because we got saved. Salvation is the way that you are made able to partake of the inheritance. But whether or not you partake of the inheritance comes down to what you choose to do. It comes down to whether or not you increase in the knowledge of God, whether or not you apply the word of God in your life. Now, folks, this authority... This position of authority, we've seen a couple of people through the church world and church age, I should say, uh, uh, throughout church history. We've seen a couple of people that, that, that get a hold of it and we think, wow, what a, a, a freak of nature they are to operate in power. But it's supposed to be the way that all of us are. And I, I truly believe we're coming to a day where the increase in the knowledge of God is such that more and more of his people exercise dominion in life. Turn with me over to Mark chapter 11. This was this is not anything new. Jesus had this throughout his ministry. We know that Jesus healed the sick. We know he exercised dominion over uh, demons and uh, disease. We know that he did many mighty works and miracles and signs and wonders and so forth. And the question was nearly always the same when he would do this stuff. How are you able to do this? Jesus dealt with this constantly. The religious leaders particularly came and they said, how are you able to do this? Now, the common folks didn't ask that so much because Jesus taught them on having authority. You go back to Matthew chapter 8 and, and uh, chapter 9, and it talks a lot about how Jesus taught on having authority. And the, the, the multitudes were, were blown away by this. They said, well, he doesn't teach like the scribes. The scribes say, well, it could be like this or it could be like this. We just never know. I think we got a lot of scribes in the New Testament church, modern day church, at least. Well, yeah, the Bible says this, but we know of things that have happened over here. So I guess we just don't know. The Lord works in mysterious ways. But Jesus taught them as having authority. He didn't taught them that he, he didn't teach them that he had authority. He taught them as man having authority. He taught them the things that we're talking about, that God created man to have dominion. Man lost that dominion through Adam, but he even regained a portion of that dominion through keeping of the law in the Old Testament. Now, all of that authority is restored through Jesus because he completed the law. But he had this constantly. We know of the story, the great story in Matthew, in Mark chapter 11, where Jesus curses the fig tree. We'll start in verse 13. And seeing a fig tree afar off having leaves, he came, if haply he might find anything thereon. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for the time of figs was not yet. And Jesus answered and said unto it, No man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. And his disciples heard it. 
whose fig tree is this? Does somebody own this thing? Or is it growing wild? How in the world does Jesus say, I'm taking authority over this fig tree? If it was my fig tree, I wouldn't have been happy about this. Although, if it was my fig tree, Jesus might, probably would have turned to me and said, why haven't you done something about this? Why are you growing unfruitful trees? God apparently doesn't like unfruitful stuff. So Jesus curses it. He says, no man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. Are you kidding? Seriously, Jesus? This thing didn't feed you, so you're cursing it for life? Forever? Yeah. Now, most people's idea of what they would have done in a situation like this is they would have come to a fig tree and saw that there was nothing on it and said, shoot, I was really hungry. God, come on, even trees don't produce for me. And if a voice from heaven would have said, do something about this, Christians would have taken a knee and said, Lord, we pray that whatever your will would be concerning this tree, that, Lord, you just, you just work your will. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus doesn't hit a knee. Jesus looks at this thing and says, no man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. In other words, you're not doing what you were created to do, so you die. And his disciples heard it. I wonder what they thought. There goes Jesus. (laughs) Never know what that guy's going to do. He's talking to trees. John says, Peter, what are you going to do about this? Peter says, I'm not going to do anything. John says, I'll talk to him about it. Peter says, no, I'm closer than you are. You're not going to talk to him. If anybody talks to him, it'll be me. Thomas says, I don't believe it. Verse 20, and in the morning as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter calling to remembrance. Now Peter will say something. Peter calling to remembrance said, Master, behold, the fig tree which thou cursest is withered away. Like Jesus is going to be surprised. (laughs) Jesus, look, I heard you talk to it. I heard you curse it. Look, it's dead now. And Jesus answering said unto them, have faith in God. I love this. Jesus did not say, yes, Peter, this proves I'm the son of God. He did not say, Peter, don't get the wrong idea. I did something that you'll never, ever be able to do. He said, have faith in God. In other words, he's saying, yeah, faith did this. Well, anybody can have faith. Romans 10, 17 says, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. You can have as much faith as you want. And you do. 
You have as much faith right now as you want. Oh, no, Pastor Mike, I want a lot more faith. Then why aren't you hearing the word? That's how it comes. It's the only way it comes. Hello. It's true. We may not like it, but it's true. Jesus said, have faith in God. For verily I say unto you that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass. He shall have whatsoever he saith. It doesn't just work on trees. It works on mountains. Now, I personally don't believe he's saying spend your time and your faith trying to rearrange the topography of the earth. Let's move this mountain over here. Let's rearrange things. I don't think that's what he's talking about. I think he's talking about mountains of problems. I think he's talking about circumstances. Jesus cursed a circumstance of lack called a tree. And it died. Then he said in verse 24, Therefore I say unto you, what things soever you desire when you pray. So apparently faith is connected with prayer too. What things soever you desire when you pray, believe that you receive them and you shall have them. And, now he talks about lifestyle, and when you stand praying, forgive. If you have ought against any, that your Father also which is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father which is in heaven forgive your trespasses. Folks, two points I want to make here real quickly without taking any time on it. Unforgiveness is the number one hindrance to your faith working. Okay, point number one. Point number two, God intends you to be as strong in love as you are in faith. That's what these verses are all about. If you're in unforgiveness, don't even think your faith is going to work. No need to. It's the greatest hindrance there is. But if you deal with the unforgiveness, the individual unforgiveness that might be there, he wants you to be as strong in the love of God as you are in the faith of God. I think a lot of us need to work on that. We've majored on faith and not so much love. That's one of the things, you know, people that uh, that knew of Brother Hagin's ministry and the things that God did through him, they would marvel at his faith. But Brother Hagin was more about love than he was faith. You get around Brother Hagin and he was always talking about love. And that's the reason his faith worked. Verse 27, and they came again to Jerusalem and as he was walking in the temple, there came to him chief priests and scribes and the elders and they said unto him, I want you to notice right on the heels of this great example of faith, this great teaching example of faith. They said, here's the chief priests and the scribes and the elders and whoever. They said unto him, by what authority doest thou these things? Who gave you this authority to do these things? By what authority do you do these things? Folks, I want you to understand, authority is always the question when it comes to doing the things of God. It's the one thing that the devil will challenge you on. First and foremost, whenever you start stepping out to take hold of what Jesus has accomplished for us. Who gave you this authority? Who do you think you are? That's where the unworthiness comes in. You know you're not worthy. It always comes back to us. It always comes back to how we see ourselves, how we perceive ourselves, what we perceive our own abilities to be, what we perceive our own worth or value to God would be with the idea that if we are, are worthy enough, then God will do something. Folks, that's not what Jesus said 
the principle of faith was. He did not say, if you believe, then God will do something. He said, you'll have whatever you say. He said, what things soever you desire, when you pray, believe that you receive them and you shall have them. He's not talking about God doing something. He's talking about your faith producing. What do you think happened when Jesus cursed that fig tree? God got off the throne in heaven and ran down and made sure to do something to that tree real fast? Seriously? You think that's how heaven works? God's running back and forth to answer everybody's prayer? Seriously? No, it's your faith that produces results. Jesus is reigning in life. What he says is carried out. Now, I don't have any doubt that the angels did something. Wouldn't surprise me at all. Don't know that for sure, but could be. But they acted on his word. Because he's reigning in life. And that's these religious people's problem. And folks, it's always going to be a problem with religious people. Don't be a religious people. Because religious people have problems with authority. That's why when you step out and start taking authority over sickness and disease in your life, believe in God for healing, believe in God for prosperity or blessings or whatever, religious people will go bananas. Who do you think you are? Look at all the criticism on the Word of faith, people. They treat God like a cosmic bellhop. That's my favorite, by the way. <laughs> Who do they think they are? It's always the problem with religious people, folks. Always. Always has been, always will be. By what authority doest thou these things? Meaning the works. And who gave you the authority to do these things? Jesus answered and said unto them, I will also ask you one question or one thing. You answer me and then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. I'll be glad to tell you, but you answer my question first. What's your question, Jesus? The baptism of John, was it from heaven or of men? Answer me that. So they go into a huddle. Religious people are always huddling up trying to explain away the things of God. They reasoned within themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he'll say, then why didn't you believe him? Well, that'd be a good question. We can't answer that. Can't say that. But if we say of men, they feared the people. For all men counted John that he was a prophet indeed. So if we say that it was of men, then the people will say that we're showing disrespect to John. And there's no telling what the people will do. So if we say it was from heaven, then we're in trouble. If we say it was from men, we're in trouble. We won't answer. So they answered and said unto Jesus, we cannot tell. We don't know. It's beside the point anyway. And Jesus answering said, neither do I tell you by what authority I do these things. Now, folks, Jesus has answered their questions. He's saying, I have authority to do these things by the same authority John had to do what he did. The baptism of John, what was it? Was it from heaven or was it from men? What was the baptism of John? John baptized people saying, repent, for one is coming. There's one coming that's mightier than I. He'll baptize you with the Holy Ghost. I'm baptizing you in water, but he'll baptize you in the Holy Ghost. His message was repentance from sins. Prepare for the Lord coming. That was John's message. Was it from heaven or was it of men? The answer is very simple. John's baptism was a baptism of men. Anointed of God. 
So what was Jesus' authority? What was the basis or the foundation of Jesus' authority? Man's dominion, anointed of God. What's the basis for ours? Man restored to authority, anointed by God, in the name of Jesus. You've got the same authority that Jesus had. And that's why the Bible says, without dispute, that those that receive the abundance of the finished work of Jesus and the gift of righteousness. Thank God it's a gift. Thank God you don't have to work for it. Thank God it's a gift. Shall reign in life by one Christ Jesus. You were born to rule in your life. You were born to rule in your life. There's a verse of scripture that the Lord has been quickening to my heart here lately. It started earlier this week, and, and I just can't get away from it. Paul talked about, I keep my body under. He said, but I keep my body under. He's talking about the man on the inside, the spirit man dominating the physical man. He said, but I keep my body under. He's talking about an exercise of his spirit that dominates his flesh. It's that exercise of spirit that dominates every work of the devil or every curse that came upon the earth because of sin that comes against you. It's that exercise of spirit. It's not a, it's not a, um, it's not a physical force. It's just something on the inside that I know that I know that I know. But I keep my body under. But I keep my body under. He goes on to say, lest that after I've preached to others, I myself might be a castaway. In other words, he's saying, I keep my body under to live by my own preaching or live up to my own preaching. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for what you've made us in Christ Jesus. Thank you for the gift of righteousness and all that Jesus accomplished for us. Oh, Father, that we would come to the knowledge of the abundance of grace, the abundance of the finished work of Jesus, that we'd quit looking for heaven to change things and we would reign in life because Jesus lives in us. You said, Father, that your plan You said to the prophets of old that your plan, which was accomplished by Jesus, was that you would walk in us and that you would live in us. That means not only to you dwell within us, within our spirits. It means you work in us and work through us. Oh, Father, thank you that we reign in life. Thank you that we reign over sickness, we reign over disease, we reign over poverty and lack, we reign over everything that would hinder us from the fullness of what Jesus purchased. Blessed be the name of Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that we've been restored a place of dominion, not in ourselves, not through ourselves, but because Jesus lives in us.
Hallelujah. Open our eyes, Father, that we might see this like we've never seen it before, that we would walk in it and partake of the divine nature in every part of our lives. In Jesus' precious name, everybody that agrees with that, say amen. 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 Praise the Lord. Well, stand together with us. Thank you so much for being here with us this morning. If you can come back and be with us for healing school tonight at 6 or even prayer school at 5 in the fellowship hall, we invite you to do that. God bless you. Have a great day. You're dismissed.